0: On this episode of Newt's World, 2019 was the last great year for the world economy. For generations, everything has been getting faster, better, cheaper. Finally, we reached the point that almost anything you could ever want could be sent to your home within days, even hours, of when you decided you wanted it. America made that happen. But now America has lost interest in keeping it going. Globe-spanning supply chains are only possible with the protection of the U.S. Navy. The American dollar underpins internationalized energy and financial markets. Complex, innovative industries were created to satisfy American consumers. American security policy forced warring nations to lay down their arms. Billions of people across the world have been fed and educated as the American-led trade system spread. All this was artificial all this was temporary. All this is ending. In his new book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, author and geopolitical strategist Peter Zihan maps out the next world, a world where countries or regions will have no choice but to make their own goods, grow their own food, secure their own energy, fight their own battles, and do it all with populations that are both shrinking and aging. Here to talk about his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Peter Zihan. He is a geopolitical strategist, founder of the consulting firm Zihan on geopolitics. In addition to his new book, he is the author of Disunited Nations, The Absent Superpower, and The Accidental Superpower. Peter. Welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. I just want to tell you, I faithfully read your newsletter on a regular basis. I find some what you write is so intelligent, so forward-looking, that it really gets me thinking differently about some of these topics. So I'm thrilled you could join me today to talk about your new book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. I thought we might start, though, with your last book, Disunited Nations, Because after Russia seized Crimea in 2014, you predicted that Russia would invade all of Ukraine. What led you to believe that would be Putin's next step?
1: Well, it's a mix of geography and demography. Demographically speaking, the Russian population is dying out. And so if they were going to try to do anything with a mass military action, it it had to be now. If they had waited any longer, they would literally not have enough people of age to draft. And then there's the geography. Russia's been invaded 50-odd times in its history, and the invasions have always followed one of a series of corridors that are between a number of pretty significant geopolitical barriers like the Carpathian Mountains, or the Arctic, or the Tian And so Russia's policy going back to the time of Peter the Great has been to forward position as many forces in those gateways as possible. Unfortunately for Ukraine, the country is located between Russia and two of those gateways. So this war always happened, and demographics tell us it always had to happen now.
0: Well, you you turned out, sadly, to be pretty prescient about that. You know, there's been a lot of speculation recently about potential global food shortages due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I must say, I saw a briefing you gave to a group of experts on world agriculture, and it was spectacular. Russia and Ukraine together export more than a quarter of the world's wheat, which then feeds billions of people in the form of bread, pasta, and packaged foods. And they're also key suppliers of barley, sunflower seed oil, and corn. How long do you think the war in Ukraine will have an impact on the global food supply?
1: We actually haven't gotten to the first significant impact yet. Obviously we're seeing some rising in prices because the world's top wheat exporter has invaded the world's fourth largest wheat exporter and is systematically destroying the agricultural infrastructure. But the bigger problem is that the Russia plus Belarus are the world's largest exporter of fertilizer, particularly when it comes to the potash varieties. So we were already looking down the maw of a fairly sharp reduction in fertilizer availability globally before this even happened. Now we've lost 40% of global potash, and most of nitrogen fertilizer comes from natural gas, of which Russia is also the world's largest exporter. So we have multitudes of farmers around the world who have had to do something different. In the United States, we've seen significant crop switching from things like corn or soy to hay. And in South Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of farmers are just choosing to not use fertilizer because they can't afford it. We won't fully understand just how bad this is going to be until we get to the first couple of weeks of September. That's when we'll get our first real understanding of just how poor the coming harvest is going to be. And this is just the start of a very long process. It takes a minimum of three years to bring a new fertilizer plant online, and we have not even started a large-scale replacement system. Some countries like the U.S. and Canada and Mexico are taking steps, but you shouldn't expect to see the beginning of that success until we get to the end of 2025. And by then, we will have years of famine on multiple continents in our back pocket.
0: You know, in your most recent newsletter article, Inflation and Global Food Prices, you noted that we're already at or near historic high prices for almost all major commodity groups going back close to 20 years. By May of 2022, the World Food Price Index had risen to 157.4, with vegetable oils increasing the most to 229.3. It's the highest it's been since 2004. Do you sense, one, that price is going to continue to go up, and two, that there's just going to be plain outright shortages for some countries at any price?
1: Absolutely, both. one of the reasons why you follow vegetable oil is in places in the world that do not have reliable electricity, frying is one of the few ways that you can prepare animal protein at volume. so food oils are critical for over half of the planet 's population. Ukraine, by itself is the world 's single largest supporter supplier of sunflower oil, and they 're about seventy percent of the market all by themselves. And so anyone else who is in the food oil business, whether it is soy or palm or whatever, has felt the pressure as people have shifted to alternatives, and there just isn't that much liquidity in the market. It's starting right now with price pressure, but not necessarily high shortages, because we have, quote, only, unquote, lost Ukraine at this point. But by the time we get to the fourth quarter of this year, it'll be apparent just how bad the fertilizer issue is. We only have about two months of global storage for wheat. Half of that is in China, and the Chinese storage system does not regulate temperature or humidity. So usually half of what they have in storage rots. So we're going to chew through the entire global storage capacity this year, and then the abject shortages will start very early next.
0: You know, I think that I read somewhere that Indonesia for a while had cut off the export of palm oil, I think precisely because they were worried that their own people would be out of the ability to cook and to produce food. They've now, I think, recently restarted it. But it was sort of a signal of what we're going to be seeing, I think, around the world.
1: Absolutely. We've already had about 30 countries that have some sort of agricultural restriction on exports, ranging from food oils to some of the cheaper proteins to certainly all the sorts of grains. We're going to be seeing a lot more of that moving forward. Some of them, like Indonesia, have managed to achieve that saturation that they were trying for, and it has been successful. But every time one country does it, it puts pressure on all of the others. So the more internationalized a sector, the faster you can get to a price runaway structure. And again, September, that's what to watch for.
0: When Callisto was the ambassador to the Vatican, we got to know Governor Beasley pretty well, who just got the Nobel Prize for the World Food Organization. I mean, he's predicting tens of millions of people starving to death and just saying that it's probably beyond our ability to fix now.
1: It is beyond our ability to fix. Agriculture is the most vulnerable sector. If you have disruptions in heavy equipment or in energy or in transport, agriculture doesn't just simply take a hit. It can take a hit that cannot even be attempted to recover from until at least the next planting season. So right now the damage has already been done. And until we can build out an alternate supply system for these components, you should not expect much improvement. Instead, you should be expecting increasingly cascading failures. A good example is what's going on with the European sanctions on Russia right now. The Europeans are putting the finishing touches on a sanctions package that will ban maritime insurers from insuring cargo in Russian ports. That means we're not just losing the Russian stuff. We're losing all of the Russian stuff downstream throughout the entire system. That is going to hit agriculture harder than anywhere else. I'm obviously worried about the Middle East because the last time we had a disruption out of the Russian space, we generated the Arab Spring and the Syrian Civil War. But I'm even more worried about South Asia, which depends upon this part of the world for their fertilizer sourcing. Uh, Brazil's in a similar bucket. Not that I expect anyone in Brazil to starve, but 85% of their fertilizers do come from the Russian space. They're okay for this planting season, but they usually do two crops a year, and it's unclear where they're going to get their inputs for the next one.
0: I was struck, and it's something you had written about, that, and I've been trying to figure out how to write this concept down, but it seems to me the way the world's evolving. We overvalue the ability of the Americans and the Europeans to provide sanctions when you have countries the size of China or India or Indonesia or Iran who are going to break the sanctions. We're seeing a real shift in certain kinds of dynamics in our diplomatic and political establishment. It seems to me as 20 or 30 years behind the reality that, in fact, there's a little bit of the point you're making in your book, that these countries are going to operate out of their own self-interest They're not going to operate out of some kind of belief in a club, and they're not part of that club.
1: There are a lot of concerns that the European sanctions package are not going to be enough or that individual countries are going to cheat on the sanctions or break them. I think we're going to hit a real shock point later this year when it becomes apparent that a lot of the Russian energy is falling offline there are a couple of natural gas pipelines, one that goes direct to Turkey and one direct to Germany. So the Russians are going to be able to have an actual honest conversation with the Germans and the Turks and say, we can leave the lights on for you, but only in exchange for you breaking your relationship with NATO as regards to the Ukraine war. If you had asked me how that conversation was going to go back on February 21st before the war, I would have absolutely said that the Europeans were going to break. But right now, The Europeans are more united than they have been on anything since the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. This was unexpected to say the least. So I'm still broadly hopeful, but to your larger point, you're absolutely right. Globalization only works if everyone cooperates with the rules. We are past that era. And so it's an open question of who is going to be that lucky country. Who decides to pull the plug in terms of the norms of shipping? I'm actually less concerned about that being someplace like Germany or Turkey or Iran. I think it's more likely to be the United States. One of the fun things about these new maritime sanctions that the Europeans have is that if you cannot get a corporate policy for insurance, the only way that you can dock at a Russian port then is to get a sovereign indemnity. And if some country decides to challenge the sanctions and provide the insurance themselves, then what happens to them when something happens to that ship? Because I can absolutely see France or Germany or the UK or the United States or someone then intercepting the commerce, which will absolutely shatter the financial relationships of whatever that country was, and they will be then legally responsible for the entire downfall. So we're now in a situation where not only have the countries that have benefited the most from globalization are turning against it, but the enforcer is as well.
0: Walk me through that just for a stage further. So let's say the Indians decide that they'll create an insurance company and that their insurance company will replace Lloyd's and will provide insurance for ships that are going to bring things to India. Mm -hmm. What's their downside at that point?
1: Should something happen to the vessel, the value of the cargo, the value of the ship and the financial position of the shipping company in question would all basically go to zero. And it would be up to the Indian insurance company to satisfy the clauses for all three things. The last time we had to deal with an issue a bit like this, it was the Iran-Iraq war when the Iranians and the Iraqis had a stalemate on land. And so they started flinging missiles at each other's corporate shipping. And so the Reagan administration stepped in with a sovereign indemnification and physically escorted reflagged tankers in and out of the Persian Gulf. But in the couple of weeks it took the Reagan administration to come up with that patch, we discovered that the loss provisions on the insurance policies were very small because no one had ever considered that anyone would shoot at corporate shipping during the globalized American-led order. And in the two weeks that it took us to come up with that plan, we almost saw a global financial catastrophe because all of the insurance companies nearly went bankrupt at the same time because there were no provisions. That's sort of the situation we're in now, and if any sovereign country decided to offer an indemnity and then they had to pay out, you would probably be looking at cascading financial problems throughout their entire financial sector. And despite what everybody says, the Indians and the Chinese are completely dependent on internationalized trade in its current form in order to maintain their shipping networks and the resource access. So the catastrophic damage that could come to them from violating European sanctions is a lot more intense than I think that most people have priced in.
0: I was really surprised at one level because don't most insurance policies for shipping have some kind of a war clause that says you can't go into a war zone?
1: That's part of the issue as well. That's one of the reasons why Russian loadings at Novorossiysk have been somewhat limited. Shipping companies can't get the insurance, so it would have to come from a government which means that the government would suffer the full loss.
0: Wow. So in that sense, there's a globalized financial world without regard to a globalized political world.
1: Absolutely. Money can fly around the world a lot faster than a tanker full of oil.
0: I'm curious because you look at these large sweeping changes and you develop a sort of geopolitical approach. What led you to do that?
1: This was actually supposed to be my third book. (laughs) (laughs) The plan was always to write a couple of books on the rise and fall of great nations, and that's really what my first three are about. I always intended the end of the world as just the beginning to kind of be the last big hurrah from a business point of view to have everything spelled out and have a map for how everything was going to change as globalization fell apart. But the publisher convinced me to switch book three and book four. So here we are with the Ukraine war going hot and fast, and the book hasn't come out yet. So we're definitely focusing on the text a lot more on what happens on the backside as opposed to the transition. But I'm always obsessed with why things work the way they do. And once I kind of understand the intellectual, physical, and corporate infrastructure that are behind things, you can then start pulling on some threads and seeing what moves. And ultimately, that's what this book is. You change a couple of the base understandings of how international trade functions, and you just watch how everything rearranges.
0: It's striking to me, and of course, the things we're seeing happen right now reinforce your insight. But you say the world of the past few decades have been the best it will be in our lifetime. That's a pretty tough statement.
1: It's actually pretty basic. So before World War II, everyone shot at each other over trade. It took the Americans' creation of the global order to give us mass manufacturing and mass energy transport and mass agricultural transport that we recognize today as normal. But for the Americans, it was always a security paradigm. We created globalization as a bribe to induce countries to join us in our cold war with the Russians. And it worked. But since 1992, we have elected a series of presidents that are ever more isolationist or revanchist. And that means we're just pretty much done here. And that includes the transition from Trump to Biden as well. Neither of them, even if they had been cold warriors, were really interested in maintaining the economic structures of globalization any longer. And that is a position that is not on the outside of the American political system. It is strongly bipartisan. Most Americans are just done, especially with the rise of China being perceived by many as a mortal threat. But just as big as the demographic picture, it used to be in the pre-globalized world that every country had more people in their teens than their 20s, than their 30s, and so on. But globalization led to industrialization and urbanization. And when you move from a farm to a city, you have fewer kids because on the farm, kids are free labor, but in the city, kids are very, very, very expensive luxury goods. So you have fewer of them. You play that forward around the world for 70 years, and we are now in an environment where a lot of countries have more people in their 50s than their 40s than their 30s than their 20s and so on. The consumption boom that you get from a lot of young people just isn't there anymore, and many countries are aging into mass retirement. That changes the economic structure. And globalization, more than anything else, is a way to provide goods for a large and growing youth class that no longer exists. So we're getting portrayed protectionism. We're getting problems with investment, which is shorting out the energy sector. We're now seeing breaks in the system, which is interrupting a lot of the flows of the other things that we need, like fertilizer out of Russia. So everything that we thought was normal for the last 40 years was really just a very specific moment in time, politically, geopolitically, geographically, financially, demographically. And all of those moments have passed. And we're now on the backside.
0: Well, you know, Japan, in a sense, was a forerunner. But I was surprised. I don't know if it was your chart or where, but at its peak around 1990, Japan was an amazingly large share of the world economy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now it's smaller, but it's still extraordinarily wealthy. And it's shrinking every year. South Korea is now about to follow it. I think South Korea at one point had the lowest reproduction rate in the world because the South Korean women left the farm and went to apartments and cities. They suddenly decided having that many kids wasn't a good idea. I know that China is, is in a sense, a really big example. But how are these secondary countries going to cope with The fact that they have smaller populations, they have, in a sense, declining dynamic economically, and yet they're in a dangerous world.
1: Japan's kind of the gold star example of how you might be able to pull it off. They've partnered with the United States in terms of security, so they have a backup plan. And they have forward positioned a lot of their industrial capacity in countries with healthier demographies, both in order to purchase political friendship and you know, to be perfectly honest, to be able to make products at a price point that is still attractive, so Toyota's probably the best example. Their two largest facilities aren't even in Japan; they're in Texas and Kentucky. That sort of desourcing is something that can theoretically be replicated by a number of countries, but you have to make sure that you have found a way to work hand in glove with the countries in question. So Japan has a partnership with the United States that dates back easily to the Cold War, if not before. And in the post-Cold War era, they have come to the conclusion that their demographic decline is so extreme and their dependence on imports is so extreme that they really don't have a choice except for seek to to seek to deepen that relationship further. So they were able to cut a series of deals with the Trump administration, something that a lot of countries had a problem with, as well as with the Biden administration. And that Ability to cross the American political divide and make friends on both sides has proven critical. Not a lot of countries have that sort of foresight. Not a lot of countries have as much to offer the United States as the Japanese have. And so it's going to be a short list of countries that are able to buy their way into America's friends and family plan, if you will. Korea, maybe. Taiwan, probably. The UK, almost certainly. But after that, it gets very difficult.
0: Wouldn't you put Canada and Australia in that basket?
1: Australia, absolutely. I would actually say that the Australians were able to cut their deals even before the Japanese. So they are one of our staunchest and most loyal allies, and they will remain so for a good long time. In the case of Canada, that's kind of a special case. The Canadians have always tried to – how can I say this without sounding like a jerk – The Canadians have always tried to give a little bit of space when it comes to security issues in order to get more space back with economic issues. It's been a very mild kind of blackmail. And during the Cold War, they were always able to get a few extractions from the United States in terms of economic policy and trade access in exchange for giving the United States deference on security issues. And since they were on the same continent with us, we were willing to give them a little bit more space than we would have for, say, another country. That stopped under the Trump administration. All of the exemptions that the Canadians were able to get out of the United States over seven administrations during the Cold War were all undone by the NAFTA revised accords. And so from our point of view now, Canada is just another country. We will see if that holds the test of time. But the Canadians have discovered that in a world where the United States really doesn't care about the wider world, they don't have nearly as much leverage as they used to.
0: As all of this stuff is evolving, one of the things that's striking, because both with legal and illegal immigration, we absorb so many people every year, unlike China or even India or Japan, we are not likely to shrink in the near future.
1: There are a couple things that are different about the United States fundamentally. The first is, is immigration. As a rule, we do have a culture that is more friendly to it. Now, that has changed of late, not just because of Trump. One of the things that's going on in the American political system is that the factions that make up both the Republicans and the Democrats are in motion. And Trump famously had his falling out with the business community and he relatively successfully melon scooped the entire community out of the Republican coalition for the moment, at least. And that was the faction of the Republican Party that was most pro-immigration. And now the Trump Republicans and the Biden administration are in a bit of a tug of war with organized labor. Trump appealed to organized labor. Biden considers them his people. And so it's an open question as to where organized labor is going to end up on the American political spectrum. But if there's one thing that the organized labor movement is known for it's for being anti-migration. So the current iteration of the Republican party is fairly anti-immigrant and the current iteration of the democratic party is trying to figure out what it is. And so that leaves immigration in the lurch. And so we have seen migration drop to the lowest level in a century at the moment. I am hopeful that that will lift time. will tell the second big factor is the boomers themselves. They were the largest generation we've ever had. They're all nearing retirement at the same time. So we have a labor pressure that is demographically driven as much as it is because of immigration. And unfortunately, it just happens to be happening at the same time.
0: As you look at the world, and I think you have a remarkable ability to extract unique insights and to put together facts in a way most people don't, if you looked out over, say, 30 or 40 years, to what degree do you think it's likely that at some place on the planet there will be a nuclear exchange?
1: We certainly can't rule it out. As the United States withdraws from the world, countries that we used to protect as a matter of course are going to feel that they need to get their own security guarantor. And getting a nuke is one of the best ways to do that. It doesn't matter what the country is, Japan, Germany, whatever. All of a sudden, it makes a degree of sense that it didn't before. And then, of course, in the shorter term, we have the Russia question. Everyone, of course, saw that massive convoy of vehicles that was coming from Belarus to Kiev in the opening days of the war. And then it stopped after a day because it ran out of fuel. And three days later, all the soldiers walked back to Belarus because they had run out of food. We now know that the Russians are not the war fighters we thought they were. And that means in a direct fight between NATO forces and Russian forces, the Russians would have a simple choice, face obliteration and a screaming retreat all the way back to Moscow or up the ante to involve nukes. So we're in this weird situation right now. where We're trying to literally destroy the Russian military in Ukraine, because if we don't, And the Russians continue on to those gateway places, then there will be a clash between NATO and Russia because the Polish gap and the Bessarabian gap, those are both in NATO countries. In fact, it was just on June 9 that Putin gave his most recent off the rocker speech in which he said that Estonia and Latvia have not just been Russian territories before, but they have been Russian territories since the beginning. And when Russia went to war with the Swedes in 1700, it was about reclaiming those lands. He's already laying the intellectual groundwork within Russia for an expansion of the war to involve direct NATO confrontation.
0: In 1993, I was part of a congressional delegation to the Yeltsin reform government in the new Russian Federation. And we met with the vice president, who was an Air Force four-star general. And he was in this huge room that had, oh, must have been a 40 feet long wall. And on that wall was the map of the Soviet Union. And being semi-clever, I said to him, that's the map of the Soviet Union. And he looked at me and he said, yes, it'll be like that again. And I thought, okay. (laughs) And he was part of Yeltsin's group, which were theoretically the reformers. So it gave you some flavor of how deep great Russian nationalism is.
1: I have no doubt that the Russians are being fed a steady diet of particularly vitriolic propaganda. But I also know that if they weren't, most Russians would still probably support the war. They really do see this as an issue of national survival And considering their demographic structure and their history, they're not wrong.
0: It's really hard for Americans, partly because we're a polyglot country made of people from everywhere, but partly because with the exception of the Civil War, we have been remarkably free of the kind of fighting. I finished a book on why the Germans failed in Russia. And when you look at the scale of the Second World War following on the First World War, With the civil war and the famine in between, I mean, the amount of brutality the Russian people have had to endure is just astonishing. And it creates, I think, as somebody once said, they knew that the brief period of prosperity and openness wouldn't last because they were going to go back to being Russians. There's just this sort of underlying sense of endurance that's very different than anything that we're used to.
1: Well, we've only faced two Invasions in our history, both from our former colonial master, the Russians have faced 50. It's a very different mindset that comes out of a climate that is cold and land that is low quality and populations that are not densely populated in cities, which makes it very difficult for them to defend themselves. So their choices are to expand to a perimeter that is more defensible or to subject themselves to slow motion collapse. And... Because we can't give them what they want, because that would mean subjugating a number of people that actually is larger in number to the entire Russian ethnicity, that would have to be their conquered population for them to feel safe. That can't happen. So we are locked into this conflict in Ukraine one way or the other.
0: And the way you're describing it, you could imagine some kind of semi-military tension for the next 30 or 40 years then it's not a Putin problem, it's a Russian problem.
1: I think it's going to be a lot more kinetic and a lot shorter term than that. If the Russian military succeeds in Ukraine, then we will have that NATO confrontation in a very short period of time. But if the Russian military can be gutted in Ukraine, then we formally begin the twilight years of the Russian people, and we will be looking at full state disintegration within Russia in less than 20 years.
0: Then it becomes like Syria or Lebanon.
1: That would be one of the better cases, yes.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. Let me ask one last question, which is, what are you working on next?
1: (laughs) So the whole idea of the end of the world is just the beginning, is to show what the map of the economy and the map of the world looks like during this transition period. It's difficult to understand historical time frames for most people, not just Americans, because we never know when we're living in a bad time until it's over. We never know when we're living in a golden age until it's over. Well, we've had this golden age of globalization now since 1945, and especially since 1992, and it has been brilliant. We have seen greater expansions in trade and greater expansions in human health than at any time in human history, and it's lasted for decades. Now we're going back to something a little bit more normal. And we're in a transition period today between the glory of the globalized order and the destruction of the disorder now for the united states we're going to enter this period weaker than we exit it so disruption change collapse and trade routes that's actually good for the american consumer the american military and the american citizenry our energy is local our food is local our manufacturing is coming back we have a lot of high inflation to deal with between now and then. But for the next 15 to 20 years, the United States is going to get a bit more powerful with each step. But after about 20 years, one of two things is going to happen. One, some regional power that we don't care for is going to rise up and try to challenge the United States in some way. Or two, we're going to see something that scares us. And we decide to venture out into the world to deal with that threat, whatever it happens to be. I am hopeful that the United States political system will have healed by that point so we can all do it together. But what we're going through here, this is really nothing more than a transition. Transition of 20 years, but still a transition. So if there is another book in me, it will be about sketching out what that world of the future happens to look like and what we Will look like as we step bravely into some place no one has ever been before.
0: I mean, you're sort of set up to write a book called The Beginning of the Next World. Years ago, when Saddam had seized Kuwait, I was in the middle of reading Green's book, From Alexander to Actium, which is a study of the Hellenistic world. And all of a sudden, around I think 200 BC, the Greeks encounter the Romans in an organized way. And the Romans have this model of bureaucratic leadership where if this general fails, there's a new general, where the Greek system was organized around personality. The Roman system was organized around the principle of bureaucratic power. And the Romans consistently would stumble into some Greek kingdom, get into an argument. The Roman Senate would then have a great debate that says, we do not want to be in a war. We're a very peaceful people. We do not want to go out and have to take over Greece. We feel really badly about having to send an army. We wish they hadn't forced us to do this, but we're going to send an army. And this goes on like eight or nine times. And I'm reading this as we reluctantly enter replacing the British in the Persian Gulf. A good friend of mine in the State Department has said, you realize that Kuwait means there'll be a... 89th Division Brigade flag, sitting in Kuwait for the next 100 years, because it's all that same model. It'll be interesting to watch and see. I agree with you. I think we're now in a period of being exhausted temporarily. But on the other hand, the sheer dynamism, the number of new people who come to America, the number of new ideas, and the fact that we actually have a cultural social structure too weak to block you. There are real limits to rising in Germany or to rising in Japan. There really aren't many limits to rising in America, which creates a sort of random genius effect that no other society I know of has. And it's not because we're clever. It's because we can't figure out how to stop ourselves. So I think it'll be an amazing couple of decades. But listen, I really want to thank you. I, I want to encourage everyone two things. One, they should sign up for your newsletter, which I find very, very helpful. Two, they should get your new book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. It captures exactly what we're about to live through. And Peter, I want to thank you for joining me today.
1: It has been my pleasure, Speaker.
0: Thank you to my guest, Peter Zihan. You can get a link to buy his new book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, on our show page at newsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Slum. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.